Well, if you would turn with me this morning, Luke chapter one, starting in verse 57, as we talk about the birth of John and the praise of Zach or Zacharias, Zach for short. Luke one tells the story of two expectant mothers who were cousins. One was Mary who gave birth to Christ and the other was Elizabeth who gave birth to John the Baptist six months earlier. Our text this morning focuses on John the Baptist's birth and the purpose for his birth. Now I must confess, I went to church, even though no one could tell it outside of church, all my life. And I remember from an early age being intrigued with this character of John the Baptist. I, I couldn't identify much with Jesus. There wasn't like just my life and temperament, like he felt a hard standard to live up to. But there was something about John the Baptist that I thought maybe if I could, if I could live up to any character in the Bible, it could be John the Baptist. He lived out in the outdoors. I love the outdoors. He had a hairy uh, animal coat on. He was intriguing in many ways to me. So who is this unique and intriguing and interesting character? Why is he so intriguing? Is it because he did wear that coat of animal hair along with a leather belt? Is it because his food consisted of mostly of locusts or to put it bluntly, grasshoppers dipped in wild honey? Was it his preaching to the Jewish leaders of the day when he called them a brood of vipers, meaning they were a family of snakes with satanic qualities? Or was it his preaching when he challenged the whole nation of Israel to this radical repentance? Or that he rebuked the immoral King Herod for unlawfully divorcing his wife and marrying his own sister-in-law? Was it because his humanness showed when he was in prison and he had doubts that Jesus was the Messiah? Or was it his murder by King Herod because he was not afraid to speak truth to power, which forever sealed his legacy of devotion to Jesus Christ, both of them spilling their blood for the kingdom of God? It's these things and more, even that we'll find out this morning, that I think endears us, or could endear us, to John the Baptist. But here's a real honest question I want to ask us this morning. I want us to consider this. Who among us would tolerate John the Baptist even for a few minutes in our modern day world? He was loud. He was abrasive. He had a strong temperament. He was dirty. He stunk. He lived outdoors. He ate weird food. And honestly, he was not very seeker sensitive. <laughs> I mean, every day when old Herod rode by in his convertible chariot, he screams out to him, Hello, adulterer. Hello, sinner. Who's that woman with you? Fleming Rutledge, 
the best-selling author of the book I've been reading this month of December. It's called Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. She writes about John the Baptist, and she says the following. When John the Baptist appears on the banks of the Jordan River, the, <clears throat> the cover-ups come to their pointed end. 2,000 years before all the water gates, all the Iran gates, and other sordid gates, John came proclaiming God's imminent judgment on the bribery of governments, the corruption of politicians, the greed of financers, the selfishness of the rich, the self-righteousness of the religious establishments. In the end, this cost him. She continues, <clears throat> he was executed without a trial in the dank dungeon of a local strongman, thus becoming truly the precursor of the one whose way he prepared, the one whose death at the hands of the political and religious ruling class signified grace to sinful people. I want us to imagine a minute this morning. Imagine a world with no more cover-ups. No more secrets. No more families that will acknowledge the alcoholism that is destroying them. No more people who are making their loved ones miserable but will not ask for outside help. No more secretaries who cover up for their bosses. No more business partners who cover up for each other. And by the way, I'm getting these headlines just from the news and from my conversations. No more parents who cover up for their children. No more spouses who cover up for their spouse. No more people pleasing. No more secrets about what you're watching on your devices. Advent, if it's anything, is a season of uncovering. The uncovering of our sin. That was in essence the message of John the Baptist. It was a confrontational message. It was an in-your-face message. The core of his message was simple. You are a sinner, so repent. It is this very message that expresses the tender mercies of God in Christ. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him in John chapter 1, and he said these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin." Advent says, in Christ, God has come to take away our sin. But it can't be dealt with unless it's admitted, uncovered. And that was sort of John the Baptist's message. Stop covering your sin. There's no need to. You're safe here. There's one who is coming that I'm going to tell you about that's going to take away your sin. That's glorious news, folks. Then... And today, I'm so thankful this morning as I study this text this week for Luke's writing about John's birth and his father's praise about his birth. So let's do this in verses 57, starting with 57 through 66. 
let's read this and sort of set the stage for John the Baptist's father, Zechariah's words about his own son and about the Messiah. So here's the story of his birth. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, speaking of Zechariah, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the Lord, or the hand of the Lord, was certainly with him. So, here we have the birth of John the Baptist. We set the stage for Zechariah's praise and prophecy about his own son. Let's be reminded first that from earlier in Luke 1 that Zechariah and Elizabeth were without child. That was a curse socially. It was a curse culturally. And to add to that, they were in old age. So, so this idea or ability or possibility of them having a child was coming down to the wire. It looked hopeless and then we remember in Luke 1 earlier where the Gabriel angel came and said, you will have a son and he'll be great in the sight of the Lord and he'll fulfill Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Meaning, the, comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. The Jewish people knew this meant the Messiah was coming. And then nine months after that, in earlier in Luke 1, we read verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. <laughs> Talking about great news during a dark time of the reign of King Herod. And then in verse 58, it tells us Elizabeth gives birth to her son. Her neighbors are rejoicing with her in this unexpected blessing. And then in 59, this family feud breaks out. You ever had a family feud? You probably have one Christmas. If you didn't have one Thanksgiving, about something, right? Here it is for us. Eight days after the birth of this special son at the time of his circumcision, it would have been very normal in a Jewish family for the father to take the lead role in this circumcision ceremony. But, but, but Zacharias can't. Remember earlier, he is mute and deaf. He can't speak. Many say he can't hear. And the reason being, he disobeyed the angel Gabriel. He did not believe Gabriel. So if an angel visits you, obey them, okay? It's obvious, both from the text and Jewish custom, that a firstborn son would be named after his father. This was certainly the expectation from the family and friends that had gathered for this ceremony. But Elizabeth interrupts the crowd. 
And she says, no, his name is John. Her family and friends, you saw in the text, pushed back. What are you talking about? That's so weird. There's nobody in your family named John. Why would you name him John? To be named John instead of Zacharias Jr. really was an emotional issue in that day because it was really renouncing the family. It was renouncing the family's work as a priest and it affected the next generation. Zacharias Jr. made a lot more sense to this old patriarch who because of his old age and couldn't have a kid was about to lose his family's name forever. But then it's sort of, <laughs> I don't know how you read the Bible sometimes, but I read it and I like humor and I like things funny. And I'm like, this is sort of gets funny now. This gets humorous. At this point, the crowd starts doing these hand motions towards Zacharias. If Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And they're like, she's lost her mind. Zacharias, come here, come here, come here. Name, baby, baby, name. I mean, they're doing his hand signs, right? Zacharias is mute and deaf to see if he'd step in and give some kind of sign that he would name this child Zachariah Jr. It says, Zachariah asked for a tablet. Folks, that is a first generation iPad right there. <laughs> he asked for this tablet and he wrote what Gabriel had told his son's name to be. Just like Elizabeth said, he wrote, his name is John. End of discussion. No question. Zechariah would no longer or not again disobey the angel Gabriel. He had learned his lesson. No, no matter what public opinion was, no matter what his family and friends thought, no matter what they said, no matter how hard they pushed, no matter how emotional they got, he says, I, this time, will obey what the angel Gabriel told me. His name is John. Zechariah's period of pain and reflection, he hadn't spoken for nine months, led him to realize that God always does what he says he'll do. In verse 64, we see in Zechariah's obedience, his speech and his hearing returned at that very moment that he wrote those words. His name is John. And he spoke immediately. His first words were these praise and blessing to God. His actual words of praise are delayed to verse 68. Because here's what Luke wants us to do in these few verses once he could hear again and speak again, Luke wants to first give us the reaction of the crowd before he gives us the word of Zechariah. And the crowd says, the crowd's response was, they were afraid and this news went viral. That's what the text tells us, but it, went, it didn't go viral on social media. It went viral the old fashioned way. Good gossip. It went through the hillside of Judea. Lord, how mercy. Elizabeth has had a child. They named him John. Zacharias can speak again. Something is up. In verse 66, the writer Luke uses this very unique phrase. Some scholars say it's not used in all the Bible. 
All who heard them laid them up in their hearts. Meaning that a strong, the crowd had a strong and deep emotion to this news. They were, they were affected by it and it prompted them to think about what it is or what is it that God may be up to. And so they asked this question, what then will this child be? Who is this child? What is his purpose? What is his role? Why is he born? Why did the angel Gabriel come to Elizabeth and Zacharias and tell them they were going to have a son in their old age when they had been barren for all these years and answer their prayers finally and name this baby John that has nothing to do with their family heritage? Oh my goodness, God must be up to something. Now at this point, in our text, in the story, <clears throat> those who are experiencing or reading this for the first time, this really raises a note of mystery. For us, if you're reading it for the first time, for them for the first time, what would this child be? And it is ironic that this deeply changed man named Zechariah, the father of John, is the one who actually answers the questions for all those present and for all those who will come after them. These are the very first words that Zacharias has spoken for nine months. He holds his eight-day-old son in his arms. Imagine the scene. They haven't heard him speak in nine months. And he says to the crowd of family and friends that are gathered, as the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 66, as the Holy Spirit indwells him and empowers him, he tells them exactly who this son is going to be in verses 68 through 79. This passage, 68 through 79, is called the Benedictus. It is the song of thanksgiving. That's what the word means. But notice here, if you would, and we'll see this this morning, he does not, Zechariah does not begin with his own son because in verses 68 through 75, this is the song of thanksgiving to the Messiah. It is only till we get in verse 676 through 79 that he addresses his son John and who he is and his purpose for coming. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to just take our time and walk through very carefully the Benedictus. Zacharias' song. Zacharias' song of thanksgiving for the Messiah and for the role that his son would play in redemptive history. Start with verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The very first words out of Zechariah's mouth are words of blessing and praise to God. He says, blessed be the God of Israel. It's a very common phrase for Jews to pray and praise. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see it everywhere. And he says, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. Now in context, this is amazing. Because 400 years, for 400 years, God has been silent. There's been no prophecy. There's been no revelation. 
for 400 years, folks. The people of Israel are asking and have been asking this question. Does God still care for us as a covenant nation? And Zechariah's very first words speak of divine visitation. It speaks of God drawing near to visit them. Matter of fact, that word visit literally means to show concern for and take care of. And notice in verse 68, he speaks in the past tense to show the certainty of what's going to happen in the future. And he says he redeems his people. He takes his people out of bondage and he sets them free. Verse 69, Zechariah says, and the Messiah has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The horn of salvation is a symbol of strength and honor and power. In Psalms 18:2, the Lord is revealed as a horn of salvation. He is saying that what is happening here with the Messiah is in perfect accord with all the promises of God made to David that through his throne he will rule forever. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Zechariah here is saying, this is not new news. Oh, it's good news. Matter of fact, it's great news. But folks, this isn't new news, he is saying in verse 70. This announcement of the Messiah was first said and promised long ago. It's the same message God gave to the Old Testament prophets to give to the people in Israel. It is the unfolding of Genesis 3.15 that says, where the seed of a woman would crush the seed of a serpent. So here's the deal. When the apostles start preaching the, the gospel, and Jesus says these words, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They are actually saying what was promised a long time ago is now here. This is not a new message, Zechariah tells us, but a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Here's how Paul spoke about it in Romans 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing nearly. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the what? Prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he had pointed the hair of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is not new news, Zechariah tells us. This is old news that is great news and is here now with us. Verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This Messiah, when he comes, will save us from our enemies. Our enemies are not the Persians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Greeks. The true enemy of the people of God is Satan, sin, death, and hell. 
Those four have been taken care of in the shed blood of Christ. <laughs> Destroyed. You and I, if we know Christ, Satan has no power over us. Sin has no power over us. Death has no power over us. And hell, we will never occupy. Verse 72 and 73 says this Messiah will show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. says that Messiah is God keeping his promises to those he had made covenant with, that Yahweh is a God who remembers. The great theme, as we know, of redemptive history is that God does remember his people. Now, it's not as if God actually can forget, but it means that he steps in to intervene or to act on their behalf, and they know he has heard their cries, verse 72 and 73. Look at 74 and 75. He continues with this Benedictus. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. Zechariah says this Messiah, this Christ, this God in the flesh grants rescue and liberation for the very purpose of serving him without fear. Just this morning as I was reviewing my notes and reading some other things, I came across a friend of mine's tweet, Dr. Gary Sweeten, who uh, I spent a lot of time with a guy who mentored me and counseled me and, and helped me in so many ways, spiritually and as a leader. And, um, and he, he, he does research all the time. And he found in his research that chaplains, chaplains for hospitals, their number one complaint, their number one complaint, folks, is that God is angry at me and he cannot forgive me. Now they know the word, but somehow it doesn't translate into their souls when they look at their life and their struggles like all of us. Zacharias says here, he rescues us, he liberates us for the very purpose of serving him without fear. That we are saved by him because of his great love for us. And this perfect love casts out fear. He does not punish us. He does not judge us. He does not bring his wrath upon us. We are in Christ. We are declared righteous because of his shed blood covering us. We are declared holy because of his work on our behalf. We are free. We are free. Thank God in Christ we are free at last. As hard as that is for us to believe, that is the life-changing, soul-changing, mind-changing, heart-changing of the gospel of Christ. Verse 76, Zechariah now turns his attention away from the Messiah and finally he gets to his own son and his redemptive role in history. Look at verse 76. It says, and you, child. Think about that. He's sitting here. He is holding his eight-day-old son. 
And he's been speaking to the crowd about the Messiah in this Benedictus, this thanksgiving to God. And now he looks down into the face of his own flesh. And he says these words, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You, son, you, my boy, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Notice he calls him the prophet of the Most High, signifying that the silence of God is over. There's a prophet in the house, and it's my boy. There hasn't been a prophet for 400 years. We didn't know how God felt about us. We didn't know if God had forgotten us. We didn't know if God had left us. We didn't know if God had abandoned us. I say to you this morning, this is my boy. And through him, God speaks again about the Messiah that proves that God has not left us and will not leave us and will not forsake us and that all his promises are true in Christ. Yes and amen. And now if we turn over to Luke 3, we would read these words. Just mark Luke 3 in your notes. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, over and over, the people of God in the Old Testament heard this phrase from the prophets. From Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Amos, they heard the phrase, the word of God came to them. Here, God is finally speaking again. And this boy will be the one in whom the word of God comes to the people again. So this makes me pause here and ask a question. What is it, what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Make note in your notes, Matthew 11. I'll read it to you. You can look it up later. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus asking the crowds. When you went out to the wilderness and the desert, what did you think you were going to see? Jesus gives them some options here. Did you think you'd see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft and fine clothing? <laughs> see some sarcasm there from Jesus. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings, are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see, people? You heard about him. You went to see him. What were you expecting? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, Old Testament quote here, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So I asked this question this morning. What is the difference between a reed, 
someone dressed in fine clothes, and a prophet. A reed is swayed by public opinions. The winds blow one way and it goes wherever the wind blows. The wind blows from the north and the reed bows down to the south. There's no stamina in a reed. It gives up quickly. There's no backbone in a reed. It bends over easily. There's no perseverance in their walk with Jesus. That's a reed. They are at the mercy of public opinion. They're chameleons in whatever group they're with, they act like. Secondly, fine clothing. A person in fine clothing here is one who gives into their own desires. A person who has no control over their fleshly impulses. It is a person who is so concerned about the external. How they look, how they come across, their brand. Their brand. And then you have a prophet. He is dominated by the word of God, the purposes of God, and the kingdom of God. What Jesus said to those folks about John the Baptist and those three options that he gave them about their expectations are the same three options for you and I today. We ask this question, what is the dominating influence in our lives? Is it public opinion? Are we reeds? Is it self-desires and fleshly desires? Or is it the word of God and the kingdom of God? Verse 76b, we get John the Baptist's primary role says, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, his number one role. He is the one that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 43. A voice is calling, Isaiah writes, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist is the one that Malachi, the prophet in Malachi 3 writes, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. John the Baptist knew his role. He knew he was like the best man in a wedding. And we know the role of a best man in the wedding. We know the role of a best man in the wedding is to make sure the bride and the bridegroom get married. And there is one thing that a best man will never do. And he will not go between the bride and the bridegroom. And that is exactly what John the Baptist said about himself in John chapter 3. He steps out of the way and allows the bridegroom to come for his bride. He prepares the bride for the bridegroom and it is his great delight to introduce the bride to the groom. Then his role as the best man was to get out of the way. And he does this with these famous but penetrating words. He must increase 
and I must decrease. John the Baptist conceptualizes following Christ in one phrase. He must continually increase and I must continually decrease. Matter of fact, John the Baptist had a whole flock of disciples. You can read in John chapter 1. And those disciples had followed him. Those disciples had come after him. And when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist went to his disciples and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, you follow him. Peace out. I'm not your guy. Is that our desire? This Christmas, is that my desire? Is that your desire to say, he must increase and I must decrease? As we wrap up here, verse 77, look what it says. He will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Spiritual salvation is man's greatest need because forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. Verse 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun rise shall visit us from on high. The one who is coming, the Messiah. He is the light of the world. He is the one because he's the light, he will give light to us who, us who sit in darkness. What in the world would our lives look like if he had not come? If his spirit did not indwell us, if his word was not present to be a guide to us. You know what, sometimes the application of a scriptural text is not something for us to actually go do physically. Sometimes the application is just for us to sit in awe and just be amazed and just ponder and roll in our chest and our hearts God's tender mercies to us. and the Messiah who has come. Take a minute to do just that this morning.